Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created. Uh, we are going to jump into those words, into that story this morning in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, because if you were here uh, with us last week, uh, you know that we started a 39-week series where we are looking at the book of Genesis. Uh, today, today we get to dive into Genesis chapter 1. And uh, if, if I've not met you, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, one thing you'll learn quickly about me is nothing makes me geek out more than being able to like dive into a Bible passage with a whiteboard. I am really excited about what we're going to be doing this morning. But uh, last week, last week, uh, Greg shared and we talked a, a bit about the why. Why Genesis? Like, we spent a year going through Matthew. Why back all the way up to the first chapter of the Bible and look at the story of Genesis? And we looked at how, we looked at a number of stories about how Jesus, when Jesus would tell, when Jesus talks about who he is, Jesus doesn't start with a proclamation from some angels to some shepherds on a hillside. No, Jesus starts all the way back in the beginning. And so over the next 38 weeks, we're going to be diving into this story of Genesis. And we're going to see that this story, it's a story of, of love and loss, of, of tragedy and triumph, of of broken family systems and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and all of these big things that we still deal with today, but it starts in the beginning. Before we follow the story of a particular people that God calls to himself, we first step back to these giant words around the creation of everything that is. And so this morning... We're going to dive into those. Uh, but before we do, I, I have a job for you. So as we read through Genesis 1, we're going to read all of Genesis 1 today, a little bit of Genesis 2, but I've got a job for you. So when I'm reading Genesis 1, when we're going through the passage, there's one thing I want you to look for. Look for repetition. Because we today, we, we communicate largely, if we want to send something out, often we'll send something out through a written form, right? And an email, a letter, a card, and in something written, if I want to highlight something, if I want to make sure that you don't miss like the main point, there's a number of things I can do when I'm writing to, to highlight something, right? What could I do to make, to make something stand out? I could, like, I could bold it, right? So I, I could put something in bold. What else could I do? So I could underline, I could underline, I could, so I could do all caps. And is anybody else like me where like when you read something in your head in all caps, like your, the little voice in your brain like yells it weirdly? Like anybody else? Is that just, is that just a weird thing my head does? But like I could go all caps. I could do like the highlighter function. And so I could highlight the phrase or the word. So in written form, there's a number of ways we can draw attention. The story we're reading we now, we engage it in its written form in our scriptures, but uh, prior to the printing press, prior to, to writing and copying and printing be, being more economical and available, way back, way back in the ancient world, when the first followers of God were telling these stories, one of the dominant ways they told them wasn't through writing it and reading it, 
but it was through telling the story. It was, an, it was an oral story. It was something you told. And so in an oral story, in something you were, to, you were going to tell, that you were going to teach your kids and your grandkids, what's a way that you can highlight an important word, an important idea? Because you can't bold it. You can't all caps it. What you can do is you can repeat it. So one of the things, anytime you're reading through your scriptures, if you come across something, it's like, huh, it feels like they just keep saying the same words or the same phrases. It's always a good idea to pause, step back and go, okay, is the author trying to tell me something? So your job, as we read through Genesis chapter 1, is pay attention for repetition, especially in, as we get into the days of creation. But we're going to start at the beginning. At Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the author gives us kind of this, this intro couple sentences, and there's one piece I want to kind of, I want to pay attention to in here. Because what we read is in the beginning, now the earth was formless and empty. Now that word formless and empty, that phrase formless and and empty, if we jump into the Hebrew, it's like my favorite Hebrew phrase ever. Uh, It's the phrase tohu vavohu. Go ahead and say it. Tohu vavohu. Okay. We're going to write tohu vavohu. Actually, we're going to put repetition up over here. That uh, That way we don't forget our job, right? So we're watching for repetition. The story begins with tohu va vohu. Tohu va vohu is what is formless and empty. Okay. In the ancient world, uh, the ancient Hebrews also recognized this, this phrase tohu va vohu. It translates to formless and empty, but they also recognize that Ultimately, they said it, it kind of represents chaos because it represents this thing before God starts the work of creation that tohu vavohu is a phrase that for them came to represent chaos. Okay? We translate it formless and empty. And did you notice uh, two of the things that were present in the midst of the chaos? There's kind of God is there, but there's two other things that are present. If we put it back up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was tohu vavohu, darkness, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Through the scriptures, what we'll find is these two things, darkness and water, will continue to represent this idea of chaos. When John talks about Jesus coming into the world, he says the light came into the world, the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not in the in in the scriptures this darkness and water in revelation chapter 21 john has this revelation of this new jerusalem this holy city coming down from heaven and he has this weird little line where he says and there was no longer any sea why well because water and darkness so often through the scriptures represent chaos so we start we start with the world tohu vavohu. It is formless and empty. And then, uh, I'm going to write chaos up here as well. 
And then we enter day one. Uh, if we go to day one, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So what's God do in day one? Well, he separates the light from the darkness, right? In, in a lot of ways, it's almost as if in day one, God is kind of providing order to something that did not yet have it, right? God is separating light from darkness. I'm going to write day one up here. And in day one, God separates the light from the darkness. And what's interesting is in day one, essentially what God is doing is he's starting the work of providing form to what's formless. Right? He's taking what's formless and he's providing form. He's bringing order into what's disordered. He, he steps into the chaos and he separates out the light from the darkness. Okay, day two. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So day one, God separates light from darkness. God, day two, what does God do in day two? He separates again, but now he's not separating light and darkness. What's he do now? He separates sky from water, right? So in day two, that's the weirdest looking two ever. So we have sky and water. So again, in day two, God is continuing what he started in day one of, of bringing form into what was formless and bringing order into what was previously disordered. Are, are, and you, are you remembering your, your job repetition? You paying attention? Okay, day three. Let's go. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And, he ga- and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit and seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening And there was morning the third day. So on day three, uh, kind of before the plants and the trees start, what does God first do? God again separates, but this time what God does is he essentially makes dry ground. So days one, two, three, what we find is that God is doing the work of providing form to that which was formless. We see God providing order to what was disordered. And at this point, I want to ask, three three days into creation, have you found any repetition? Have you seen anything? What's some repetition you've seen? Yeah, how does each day start? And God said, right? And God said, let the light, and God said, let the, and God, so one of them, and God said, 
All right. Anything else? We see anything else? All right. What was that? Name. Okay. So he named something. Yes. So we'll throw that in a second. But what about what comes after and God said? Like, and God said, and it was, and it was so. So and God said, and it was so. And then what happens? So and God said, and it was so, and God saw, right? God, so God says, it's so, God saw. And then a God, each time he steps back and he says something about what he sees. It is good. All right, well done. Okay, there's more. Uh, we're going to hold here. Uh, God said it was so. God saw and it was good. So what's fun in the story is right here, kind of, you could probably already feel a shift at the end of day three, that what we're going to find as we, as we read through this creation story is that right between three and four, days three and four, we see a shift in what happens in the creation account. Now let's jump into day four. Next one. Day four, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. So day four. Do we see God separating? No, in, in, on day four we see something shift, don't we? We see a turn. On day four, God isn't necessarily separating, but instead now God is, he's creating something, right? He's filling something. What does God create on day four? The, the sun and the moon, right? The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. So on day four... We almost see a shift. That if in days one, two, and three, God was providing form to what was formless, order to what was disordered, on day four, God starts filling that which was empty. Do you see that? It's separation, providing form, providing form, providing form. And now God starts filling that which was empty. Day four, the sun and the moon. Let's jump into day five. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Again, is God separating again? Is God providing form? No, again, what we find is now God is filling that which was empty. And on day five, what does God create? Essentially, birds and fish. 
So God again is filling that which was empty. At day six. And are you, are you noticing the repetition? Is it continuing? It's still there, right? Day six. And God said, let the land produce living creature, creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Day six, what does God create? We have kind of animals and humans, right? So on day six, again, God isn't separating. God isn't providing form to what's formless. God is now filling that which was empty. And this is where this creation story gets even more fun. Because what we've seen is in Genesis, in in days 1, 2, and 3, what we find is God is essentially providing form to what was formless. In days 4, 5, and 6, he's filling that which was empty. But did you notice the order? On day 4, God created the sun. What does the sun fill? What did God separate on day 1? What does the moon fill? The night, what do the birds fill? The sky, what do the fish fill? The water, what do animals and humans fill? The ground. On days one, two, and three, God is separating. God is, God is providing form to that which was formless. God is providing order to what was disordered. On days four, five, and six, God in the exact same, in the exact same method, in the exact same way, fills the very things he separated in days one, two, and three. I'll, I'll never forget the first time I saw Genesis 1 in this light, like, mind blown. But this morning I want to step back and ask the question, okay, okay, cool, cool. What does it matter? Why? Why do we have this creation account telling us that God is, is forming, that God is ordering, that God is providing order to the world, that God is filling that which he ordered? Why? And in order to answer that, I, I want to talk just a little bit about how there are a number of different ways we can approach these words, we can approach the book of Genesis, we can approach the creation account. Because one of the ways we could approach these words in this chapter is we, we could come to this chapter and say, 
the original intent, what the author is trying to tell us, is the step-by-step description of exactly how God created the world. As if this is like the Ikea manual of like step one. Step two. Anybody ever put together an Ikea? Like when you have like this, like it's almost like that paint splotch thing and you have to figure out which piece in the box that is. And if this is the step-by-step description of how God created the world, I think we end up with some tough questions. I think we end up with some really hard questions if that's what the story is trying to tell us. Uh, let, me, let me show you. Day four. What does God create on day four? The sun and the moon. When God tells us in day four he creates the sun, God literally says, by the sun, this will serve to help you so that you can now mark dates. Okay, so if we get the sun on day four, and the sun is what we will use to determine what a day is, how do we determine days one, two, and three? Right? The, literally, the thing God said, you'll use this to mark days, hasn't shown up until day four. How do we know, how do we mark days one, two, and three? And then the question, like, how do you measure hours? Well, again, you kind of need the sun, right? And so, so we end up, we could end up with the question of like, okay, so are these seven 24, literal 24 hour days? And if so, how do we, how do you gauge that when you don't yet have the sun until day four? Uh, you, you could end up with the question of like, okay, where do the dinosaurs fit? Right? Like, where do the dinosaurs fit? Uh, then the, the other question, if we just stay on the idea of the sun for a little bit, like, if the sun isn't created until day four, and with the sun, all of the other stars and the lights in the sky, how do we have light in day one to begin with? Where in the world did the light come from if the sun was created in day four? Do you see some of the questions? So my question for us this morning What if the story, what if this story is intending not so much to tell us the step-by-step how-to guide that God used, but what if the story is intending to teach us more about the who of the God who created everything that is? What if the answer it's trying to give is less how and more Who, what is the God who created everything like? Who is the God that created all of it? And if we come to the story with that question, I think we find some different answers. And in order to show that, I actually want to step back from this story just a little bit, and I want to tell you another story. It's a different creation story. It's it's a creation story that was actually told by the ancient Israelites' neighbors. See, where the ancient Israelites lived, they had some neighbors, some people that we know as the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, they also had a story that they said, this is how the world started. Uh, Their story, uh, we know it as the Enuma Elish, and I want to give you like the Cliff Notes of the Cliff Notes version of what this story is. So if, if you have ever studied like world religions, or if you've ever given any time to studying the Enuma Elish, like... I am sorry for what I'm about to do to that story. Uh, but the Babylonians, they had this, this story, uh, how they said the world started. And what they said is there wasn't one God. There were multiple gods. 
And all of these gods, they, they were almost kind of competing against one another. And this kind of cosmic battle broke out between the gods. And one of my favorite parts of this story is why this battle started. Because essentially the, the lesser gods were just being so incredibly noisy that the main god was having a hard time sleeping. If you have a newborn, like, amen to that, right? But, but so the lesser gods, are, they're, they're being noisy. The main god is having a hard time sleeping. And so this giant cosmic war breaks out between these gods. It kind of comes down to these two major uh, Babylonian story pagan gods, Tiamat and Marduk. Uh, what happens is Marduk is essentially this giant champion who says, I'll, I'll be able to take out Tiamat. And so Marduk does. He ends up defeating Tiamat. He shoots her with an arrow. Tiamat splits into two. Out of her eyes come the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then what happens, according to their story, is out of the corpse of this pagan god Tiamat, essentially the world essentially comes out of the, the pieces of the corpse of this defeated God. Humans get created much later as kind of an afterthought, and humans were created essentially to, to serve the gods, to essentially kind of be slaves to the gods. It's the story the Babylonians told. What we find is every culture, every people have stories about how the world started, right? Like, even our world isn't a whole lot different. But what we have, if this story, if this story is intending to tell us about the who, of who is the God who created everything, what is that God like, if we look at it through the view of the story the Babylonians told, what we find, I think, is really, really important. Because in the Babylonian story, what happened is there were, there's this battle of multiple gods. What does our story tell us? No, there's not multiple gods. There, there are not multiple gods at war in the heavens, but there is one true God who, who, who is over all of it. There is only one God. And then a Babylonian story, what does it tell us about how did the world get created? Well, it's kind of this mistake, right? It was kind of this, this thing that happened. It wasn't meant to happen, but it kind of did, and it was never intended. But what does our creation story tell us? Our, our creation story, this story, tells us that from the start, intention was baked into it. The repetition alone, if you look at what, what our story repeats, and God said, and it was so. There is intention, there is order all over this story. That the world exists, not as a mistake, but the world exists because the one true God intended to create everything that is and created then out of that intention, out of that intent, everything that we know, everything that exists. In the Babylonian story, what is the perspective of the God to the world? The people are kind of the servants and slaves. Like They come from the corpse of this defeated enemy. The gods, essentially, they do not like the world. What does our creation story tells us? tell us? 
Not only did God create intentionally everything that is, but every step along the way, God looked at what He created and said, It is good. It is good. Every single piece as it's being created, God steps back and says, It is good. That our creation story shows us uh, the who, who is the God who created everything is a God who created everything with intent, a God who is unbelievably powerful, and a God who is intimately personal in the world he created. And that second piece, that God being intimately personal, is actually, I think, why we have our second creation account in our Bibles. Have you ever noticed that? That if, if you read Genesis 1, you get through the entire creation account. At the end, God creates humans, uh, says, be fruitful, increase, multiply. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, and we read, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, we read this. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. So as we're reading, you have to ask the question, like, hold on, didn't we already do this? Like, didn't Genesis 1 already already describe that we created everything? And then Genesis 2 starts up and like, okay, this is the account of how the heavens and the earth were created. Now, no shrubs had yet been formed. But if you remember the end of day 3, we were growing shrubs, right? So again, if this story is trying to tell us the how how it happened, we run into another problem because we've already created the thing that's about to be created again. Do you get it? Do you see it? But if the story is trying to teach us the who is the God who created, what we find in Genesis 2 is something unbelievably beautiful about who God is. And I want to just, I want to tease out just a couple highlights of Genesis 2 for you. Let's go to the next one. It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Let's go to the next one. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Let's go to the last one. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Genesis 2. Where is God in relation to the world he's created? What does God use to create humanity? Like, the dirt from the ground. Right? Genesis 2. We have a God who is intimately close and present in creation. And now this is where I think it gets really helpful that if we step back and we look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together, we find kind of more of a total picture to that question of who is the God who's created all of it. Because in Genesis 1, in Genesis 1 what you get is a picture of a God who's unbelievably powerful. A God who is literally able to speak, and it was so. Right? A God that creates worlds with simply just speaking words. But if all we have is Genesis 1, 
Where is God in relation to the world he's created? It's almost like he's somewhere else speaking it into being, right? Like God is unbelievably powerful. But if all we have is Genesis 1, God is kind of creating from somewhere else. Now, if we have Genesis 2, if all we have is Genesis 2, what we find is that God is creating from, from actually within the world he's created. He's scooping down and grabbing the dirt from the ground. But if all we have is Genesis 2, we're forced to ask the question, well, where did the dirt come from? Because Genesis 2 doesn't tell us that God created the dirt. It tells us he used the dirt to create the man. But when we hold the two together what we get is this beautiful picture of who God is as a God who is bigger than anything that exists. A God who is so powerful. He just uses words to create worlds in everything that is. And a God who is intimately connected to and personal and in and among and with the very world he's created. And I think this is so important. I think it's so important that we understand this is who God is. Because I think some of us, we know what this feels like. Uh, The story begins with chaos. With this world in this chaos. And God stepping into the chaos and providing order and filling with life. And I think part of it, part of why this is important, is because for some of us, we live lives that feel often chaotic, don't we? That if chaos is kind of the world before God steps in and orders and fills, if, if chaos is kind of the world opposite the way of God, for some of us, we know what chaos feels like. For some of us, uh, the chaos in our life, it, it might feel like a broken relationship. It might feel like, like a, a tension within the family dynamic. For some of us, chaos might feel Like we've had to say goodbye to somebody we love. We just came through the holiday season. For some of us, chaos feels like that empty seat at the table. For some of us, the chaos are the words that we tell ourselves that we're not good enough, we're not enough, we'll never be enough. For some of us, for some of us, for some of you, you might be in a space where what you're experiencing in life feels chaotic. You find yourself in power. I don't even know how we're going to get through this. One of the beautiful things this teaches us is what does God do in the face of chaos? Does God run away from it? Does he shy away from it? Does he hide from it? Does he look at it and go, oh man, that's too big for me to do anything about? No, what we find is that God is a God who steps in every single time. That as we looked in the last year in the story of Jesus, what we find in the story of Jesus is, is, a, is a picture of God stepping into, again, the chaos of the world to bring order and to bring life. That in Jesus, what we see is what's always been true of God. Paul tells us that in Jesus, we see what God looks like, and we see a God who, is, who has control, who has power over all things, and who is intimately connected to the world he's created. So if, if you're here, and you feel something, you're living a you're living something that feels like chaos. It's my invitation, invite God into it. Even if it feels too big, how in the world are we going to be able to get through? Invite him into it. And then that second piece, the God being intimately personal with the world he's created. 
I think one of the things too often, we live our lives too too often, so many of us live our lives alone, isolated. We live in a more technically connected world than, is ever, than we've ever seen before. And yet so often we live isolated lives within it. There's a screen could never take the place of a warm embrace, right? One of the things we learn in this story is that the God who created you, the God who created literally the universe as it exists isn't just concerned with the grand story. He's also concerned with your story, with each little detail of your life. That in those moments where you might feel alone, where you feel isolated, where you feel like you just have to go it alone, the creation story tells us no, no, no. That is not true. The God who created you, who formed you, who formed everything that is, who intended to create everything that is, is a God who is with you now, who is with you yesterday, who will be with you tomorrow, regardless, come what may, whatever chaos, whatever triumph, whatever tragedy, whatever comes, the God, our God, the God of the Scriptures, is with you in all of it. In all of it. And it's my hope that as we, as we play with these words, as we look at how the creation story tells us about the who of who created everything, of who created the world, of who created you, that we might live differently because of who we are because of that. Uh, would you pray with me? God, as we step back and as we reflect on just how incredibly big and powerful and intimately connected and personal you are, God, may you help us. May you help us to come to know you more fully as we try to follow you more closely. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.